Hello and welcome to Life Sentences, the podcast about contemporary biography. I'm Caroline Baum. We're living in a time when espionage has taken on a whole new dimension in the digital era. But that doesn't lessen our fascination with the human stories of those who spied or were accused of doing so at the height of the Cold War. In 1953, Ethel Rosenberg became the first woman to be electrocuted in the US for a crime other than murder, accused of being a Soviet spy alongside her husband, Julius. At the time of her execution, she was the mother of two young boys who were later adopted into a wonderful family called the Mirapoles. Anne Seber has written a biography of Ethel called Ethel Rosenberg, A Cold War Tragedy. Her previous biographies have tended towards women of style and glamour, such as Wallace Simpson, Jenny Churchill, Laura Ashley and Margot Fontaine, as well as her group biography, Les Parisiennes, about how women in the capital of France survived the war years. This book takes Anne in a very different direction, in a narrative about very high stakes, international politics and a family with very contrasting definitions of loyalty. I spoke to Anne while she was on a well-deserved holiday in Crete. I wanted to ask you just to start with, I've got a theory that you are a biographer who approaches your subjects by interest in an era. And I don't know whether I'm right or wrong, but I'm thinking the Duchess of Windsor, the 1930s, Les Parisiennes, a group biography, kind of the 1940s. And so I'm thinking Ethel Rosenberg, the 1950s. There seems to be a progression here. Am I completely wide of the mark? You're not wide of the mark at all. That's really interesting. Most people, if they try and find a thread in my work, think that I always write about women and try and come up with a revisionist angle. And to an extent, that's true. The thread is women, and I like to look at wives and sisters and mothers, people who are perhaps behind the man who has been written about, and I think there's a story about the woman. So here's my interest in Ethel. In 1936, she joined the Communist Party. Many people joined the Communist Party in 1936 because it was such a key uh, globally And Ethel and Julius had many friends who went to Spain and joined in the Civil War to fight against Franco. So, you know, if if you were that sort of person who believed that you had to take action, 1936 was so important because communism seemed the only way to beat the fascists and to beat the Nazis. It should be said that Ethel's communism had deeper roots as well. She was an idealist and having grown up in great poverty, also believed that communism was a route to a better life for so many people. But those are my my real interests in, in 1936 and the 30s in a wider sense. And then, of course, the story culminates in the 1950s, by which time the United States is in the grip of intense Cold War paranoia. Well, of course, I mean, Ethel and Julius were arrested in 1950. So in a sense, the 1950s is not quite accurate, but you can already see the era of the 1950s and the 1950s housewife and the requirements for the 1950s housewife to stay at home. All those things are already coming into play. But I would say it starts much earlier. The Cold War really began in 1945, and certainly by 1946. And you have Churchill talking about um, an Iron Curtain descending. And there is this strong feeling that permeates the, the entire atmosphere of hysteria, if you like, or paranoia that permeates my my book about Ethel, the story of Ethel and why they were arrested, this fear. And it's the fear that America and the Allies may have won World War II and lost so many of their bravest and finest in the battle, but they were in danger of losing the peace. Suddenly, in 1949, for example, when Russia explodes an atomic bomb, there is this immense fear. How on earth did the Russians get hold of atomic know-how? So there's a misreading of the Soviet knowledge. There were, of course, American spies, but there was also much greater knowledge 
of how to create a bomb. The real problem was the logistics, how to deliver it. But all of this feeds into the paranoia that becomes known as the McCarthy era. You know, we have Senator McCarthy, who is really upping the ante by saying that there are communists in all areas of American life. And that lasts really until he exhausts himself in 1954 with the army McCarthy hearings. But during this period, it is very, very intense. And that's why Ethel absolutely fascinated me, because here is at the beginning, an ordinary woman, an obscure woman, a woman who grew up in poverty, who we really wouldn't be talking about, except for the fact that she brushed up against these terrifying forces in history. I was very interested in reading that you came at this story initially, your awareness of this story was back in the 1970s through reading E.L. Doctorow's The Book of Daniel, which of course is a novel based on the lives of the two children of Ethel and Julius. And those two children obviously cooperated with you on this book. So it isn't an authorised biography in any sense. But can you just tell us a little bit about the cooperation with the two sons? And did they impose any kind of conditions on you? Mm. It's so interesting. Can I just step back a little bit as to as a biographer, how one does come up with ideas. Because, of course, in 1978, when I was living in New York as a young mother of two children, and I had a son and a daughter, and the highly fictionalized version of the book of Daniel by Doctor is about a son and a daughter. I didn't know at that point that the real Rosenbergs were, were two sons. And I also read at that point Sophie's Choice, about a son and a daughter. And I think that really is a seed that has stayed with me for a long time, this idea that it's mothers who are always the ones who who are to blame, if you like. It's let's look at the mother and what was her role. So, you know, you've got my book on, on Jenny Churchill, where I felt that Jenny really was the right mother for Winston, but she hasn't been given historical credit for it. And, and moving right along, the the immediate response to why I wanted to do this was my book on women in Paris, which had many SOE women and spies involved in that. And the publishers were nice enough to say to me, well, you've written one book which talked about spies. Can you find another? And then I realized that as soon as you looked at the Rosenberg story, everybody talked about are the Rosenbergs, the spies, as if they were one indissoluble unit. And that sort of, I think, lazy thinking um, makes me bridle a little bit because I started it really with no preconceptions at all, but I didn't believe that a husband and wife are an indissoluble unit. They're individual people. So I wanted to extrapolate Ethel. So that's really how I started. But the other factor in all of this is that when I looked at it, I realized it always takes me about five years to write a book. It would be about 70 years um, from the date of the trial or electrocution and publication of my book. And there's no magic about these anniversaries. I realized that even though publishers sometimes like them. But I realized that 70 years was a good time to find people who were alive. If you left it any longer, there wouldn't be anyone alive. So this is a very long answer to your question, how we come to the sons. So I definitely wanted to write this book without any kind of authorization. I mean, that would have been a hopeless attempt with a hand tied behind my back. So I did a long proposal to the publisher, which you have to do nowadays. And the publishers were excited enough to make an announcement. And of course, um, Ethel Rosenberg's sons, who are now known by their adoptive name of Mirapol, have a Google alert on anything about their parents. And they immediately saw this announcement and they thought, who the hell is this woman in England who thinks she's going to write about our mother? And she hasn't even contacted us. So I was a bit embarrassed. I, I'm not sure there was a right way round um, that I should have done it in, in the other order. But I immediately emailed them and I got on a plane. And they were a bit wary because they looked at me 
as an English person who'd written about royalty because of my book on Wallace Simpson. So I would say that we had a very arm's length, almost uneasy relationship at the beginning. They really didn't know what I would write. And they felt if they gave me too much information, they were possibly entrusting it to somebody um, who, who they didn't know. And they, they, they just didn't know what sort of book I would write. However, they did, after the second meeting, introduce me to two people who were still alive, a woman called Miriam Moskowitz, who was in prison with Ethel, and the extraordinary child psychologist who had helped both Ethel and Michael and who lived in California. Sorry, I should just say there that Michael is the elder of the two sons. Michael was born in 1943 and by his own account was a very challenging child. Um, He didn't sleep easily and he was sickly. And Ethel, perhaps we'll come on to her motivation of being a good mother and why it mattered so much to her. But Ethel had to take advice from the child psychologist, Dr. Elizabeth Phillips, who is still alive at 100 and was one of the most inspirational people I have ever met. And to meet somebody who was a link to Ethel in her darkest hour was very, very important to me. So I had a few other conversations with the Mirapols. I read everything and I did my Um, travels and went to universities and and happy to tell you where I went in search of this story. But I didn't actually have contact with the sons again until I'd finished the book when I wanted them to give me copyright to use the letters. And at that point, I've got to know them much better in the last year as we've done a few interviews together. But throughout the writing of the book, I remained at arm's length. Did you end up, do you think, Anne, feeling in any way protective of them? (laughs) They are delightful, inspiring men. I suppose um, I look at their story and you'll know from reading the book, I like to think I am empathetic, probably more than sympathetic. It's very dangerous for a biographer to put herself or himself in the shoes of the person you're writing about. I think um, it's said to be the first crime of the biographer to identify with your subject. That having been said, you do have to try and put yourself in, in the shoes of the person you're writing about. So probably I felt protective of them. I think the way they have come full circle, they fully accept that their father, Julius, was a spy. And I haven't always accepted everything that they believe. So I think, I hope I've come up with a more nuanced portrait. They've been quite active in trying to restore the name of their parents. And I gather that they were very keen, for example, that Obama, President Obama, exonerate their parents, which didn't happen. Were you surprised by that? No, I think I'm never surprised by what politicians refuse to do. The slipperiness of politicians has no surprises for me. Um, What's in it for him? That having been said, the president at the moment is against the death penalty. And if nothing else, My view is if my book is about one thing, it's about the rule of law. So I think anyone who has an interest in in seeing that American justice is done, and clearly this was a corrupt trial, and there were various reasons why it was corrupt. Although I'm not going to get involved in the exoneration campaign, I don't think that's the role of a biographer. My role is to tell a story as accurately as I possibly can. Um, But, you know, let's examine the miscarriages of justice since we're here and there might be a reason to exonerate Ethel on that basis. So first of all, Ethel was charged with conspiracy to commit espionage. So conspiracy is almost impossible to disprove. It's the espionage bit that I take issue with. So the reasons that it was a mistrial is because you still needed an overt act. And the only overt act that they could come up with 
was the perjury of her younger brother, David, seven years younger, who had worked at Los Alamos. And David said that he had seen his sister do some typing of notes that were sent to the Soviet Union. He ultimately admitted when he came out of prison that he had never seen his sister do it. And, and if anybody had done the typing, perhaps it was his his own wife, Ruth, who was never indicted. He did a plea bargain. And so the only evidence of Ethel actually being guilty of an overt act was perjury. And we know from David's grand jury notes, which I've seen now, he, he lived until 2014 and they were finally released after his death, that when he was first arrested by the FBI, he said, my sister had nothing to do with it. I'm saying that not just because she's my sister, leave my sister out of it. But he invented a story so that he had a lesser sentence, his wife none at all. The other real aspect of corruption in the trial was the way that the judge consorted, had ex parte discussions with the prosecution. And, and the third real reason is that they were effectively charged with treason. That wasn't part of the formal charge because there were different um, requirements. If you're charged with treason, you have to have two witnesses to any overt act. But the judge kept using this word treason in the trial. So the jury and the prosecution used it as well. So the jury really believed that they were trying people for treason. But actually, the acts which Ethel and Julius were accused of happened when the Soviet Union was an ally. So treason was not appropriate and they couldn't produce the evidence. There were other aspects as well. Ethel wasn't shown all the evidence. But that's a good reason why an American president who is against the death penalty might say, I actually think this would have been a far stronger action for Eisenhower or, or his predecessor Truman to take if they had converted Ethel's sentence to a long or a short prison sentence, because actually the American government was aware that the evidence against Ethel was weak at best, and they were using her as a lever, hoping to make Julius talk or that she would talk. There was secret evidence, so they knew that Julius was guilty. They did not have evidence against Ethel, but they actually got caught. And as the deputy attorney general said, she called our bluff. Because she didn't crack under pressure and she didn't confess on the eve of her execution. Precisely. They thought, you know, this trial is riddled with stereotypes of how women would behave. At one level, some people thought, well, any mother would surely confess. Although what could she confess to if she hadn't actually committed a crime? She'd been a good wife. She had loved Julius. I mean, this is a love story. Uh, she probably knew what he was doing. She probably approved. But those things are not crimes. So, you know, she was not even obliged to turn her husband in. What you think and what you know is not a crime. So they had to conjure up something that turned what Ethel did into a crime. But um, the whole trial and subsequent two years in prison, you see a, an attempt to stereotype Ethel either as, as a mother who would surely give in or confess to something she hadn't committed to be with her children, or you see a, another stereotype that she's a victim, that she's a, a martyr, or that she is actually the master. Because she was two and three quarter years older than Julius, the judge couldn't believe that this was a normal action of a woman to marry somebody younger unless she was the master. So there's some garbled Nietzschean philosophy going on there that many people believed that Ethel must be the master and that Julius was her slave. This was not based on evidence at all, but because they were following, and, and Eisenhower himself in his final letter, you see, that's what he believed, that Ethel was the stronger of the two. And he wrote a letter to his son saying that um, if we don't kill the wife, then the Soviet Union will recruit women for, for their spies. I mean, it's, it, it, it reveals a lack of knowledge because, of course, 
women had been used as spies from Mata Hari onwards. There was nothing new about having women spies, but he was desperately searching for a way out to justify the fact that they were killing a 37-year-old mother and orphaning two children who were 10 and 6. But Ethel confessing, I believe, was not an option. It was not an option for all sorts of reasons. First of all, what would she confess to if she hadn't been actively involved in spying? Secondly, she was trapped because if she had confessed knowing about anything, she would have enforced the death penalty against her husband. So how could she live with that afterwards? How could she come out of prison, be a mother to her two boys? What would they think when they grew up and realized that her confession had killed their father? And the third reason is that I think um, being in prison in solitary confinement for two years, she agonized over what legacy she could possibly leave her sons. There was nothing material. The FBI had taken everything. So the only legacy she could leave them was a moral one. And she decided that loyalty trumps everything. She had seen her brother, David Greenglass, betray her. She had seen betrayal in many areas of her life. She was going to leave her sons the legacy of loyalty. Loyalty not only to Julius, but to the other friends who she refused to name who she and Julius knew had been involved in this espionage business. I have to disagree with you, Anne, when you say that if your book is about one thing, it's about the rule of law, because to me... This is a book about family and about the tragedy and the complexity of a highly dysfunctional family that was also a family struggling with intense deprivation. And before, in in one of the comments you made earlier, you mentioned mothers and, you know, going back and looking at the mother and the mother always gets the blame. Well, actually, in your book, it has to be said that Ethel's mother is a monster. So Ethel's mother, Tessie... Um, was an immigrant. Both her parents were immigrants from Eastern Europe with not much money, illiterate in English. They spoke Yiddish together. Ethel did a lot of the writing and communicating on their behalf. But Tessie, who inherited a stepson and then had three children of her own, of whom Ethel was the first, but there were two sons, Tessie believed that um, Ethel as a girl, as a daughter, only had value to bring in wages until she was married, and then her life would consist of being a mother and a wife herself. That education was for the sons. So all the effort and love and devotion was put into the sons, but particularly the youngest son, David, who was born after several miscarriages when Tessie was reaching the end of her childbearing years, and he was chubby-cheeked and curly-haired and rather cute as a baby. And Ethel adored him too, and Ethel read to him. But Ethel was the bright one. Ethel was not only clever, she skipped a year at school, she was talented, she was musical, she was artistic. And so all of this had the effect of distancing herself from her mother, who never came to her concerts, never valued her thoughts. Ethel um, was believed to be a snob by Tessie because she concerned herself with Italian arias and Russian peasants. You know, what business has she got to worry about those remote things? She should be concerned about her parents at home. So Ethel had to leave school at 15. She couldn't go to college, although college for women was just beginning. And she continued as an autodidact. She went to um, the amateur dramatics of settlement houses. She taught herself to sing. She found an old piano that someone had thrown out because this was the depression. People were living in great poverty. But she did do what her mother wanted. She got a clerical job in a packing company, gave most of her wages to her mother. I mean, there was nothing unusual about that in those days. But it was while she worked at this packing company that she got involved in a strike for better pay and conditions. 
And I think here you see Ethel's character developing real single mindedness. She was quite a timid girl at this point, by, by all accounts, but nonetheless became a leader of the strike. She lay down on the on the road on her raincoat to stop lorries coming into the packing company. And although she was dismissed for six months and lost her, her pay, there was a new Labour Relations Board at, at this point in 1935, and Ethel was 19, and yet these were heady words because the chair of, of the board decided that Ethel had acted with justification and deserved back pay. So this is the beginning of Ethel learning that actually you can have power if you believe in something. And the other key moment, I think, was when she applied to sing with a choir at Carnegie Hall, not just any old choir, but, you know, the top Schola Cantorum, and they rejected her because she couldn't sight sing. So she went home and taught herself to sight sing, went back for an interview and was taken on the second time. So here she was singing in Carnegie Hall, some of the greatest European classical music, completely self-taught. In my view, this isn't just any old person we're talking about. This is someone who, had she lived, would really have achieved something in life. But all we can see at, at this stage, since she died at 37, was the single-mindedness that I think somehow helped her through her three years in prison, two of them in solitary confinement, because it, it's something that I think needs explaining and understanding how a woman with two children at home could possibly get through this appalling time with a death sentence hanging over her. I want to talk about Ethel as a mother because you give that a great deal of focus and attention and it actually provides some of the most emotionally rich, rewarding and poignant um, content of the book. And that's really, for me, there was one tiny detail that really struck home, which was that when she was in prison and she was in solitary confinement, she maintained her subscription to a parenting magazine because she was so concerned even then with being a good mother to those two boys, knowing that she would not be there to raise them. She had had such difficulty raising the first boy, Michael, because he had been unwell and never slept and was difficult. She had no proper parenting at home. She went to learn parenting from magazines and it had become a new field, as you point out. But I find that particular detail is really heartrending. There is so much to say about Ethel as a mother. And you're quite right to say this is a book about families. You know, at one side, you have the dysfunctional family of her own mother, who never supported Ethel before prison and certainly didn't support her in prison. So where could she? And, and at the other side, you have the redemptive family at the Mirapoles of, of the Mirapoles who bring up these two children. And in between, you have this terrible tragedy of the trial and prison. So how did Ethel get through being a mother in prison? You're quite right to focus on that. She wanted to be not just a good mother to her children, but a better mother than her mother had been. I think that's one of the most powerful motivational factors for Ethel throughout her life. So that's why she not only went to music classes so that she could then teach her children because she'd been denied that opportunity of music classes. She went to mothering classes and she didn't go to just any old mothering classes. She finds a Viennese emigre, Edith Buxbaum, and enrolls in classes. Yes, she has a subscription to Parents magazine, which she continues while she's in prison and, and she reads all the books. And from that, we learn her first year while she was at the Women's House of Detention, she hoped she would win the trial and would be reunited with her children. So she decided not to see her children while she was in the women's house of detention. That was, of course, held against her. She was accused of being uh, made of stone, not wanting to see her children. But she had learned that having her children come to prison would possibly be damaging for them. So she hoped to spare them that. However, when she was in Sing Sing in solitary confinement, she knew she had to see them and thought about it so carefully. 
And I think there's a really poignant scene where, you know, she couldn't go and buy toys for their visit. How on earth could she entertain them? So she collects dead spiders and ants and whatever she can find in her cell and puts them in envelopes to play with with the children. And I think there is a deeper significance to all of this. Actually, what she's doing very gently is introducing the topic of death to her children. Perhaps even she didn't know what she was doing. But I think subliminally, she's saying to the children, look, death can be beautiful. Death isn't necessarily the end. Don't be scared. Other mothers can take their children out to a forest or wood and open up bark and live creepy crawlers come out. Ethel didn't have that opportunity. So I think this is really inventive and clever. She's finding with whatever means she has at her disposal, a way of trying to ease the possibly inevitable that she doesn't come back, that she is killed and helping her children. And I think you also see this in the letters she's writing to them. I know some of the letters to her husband ultimately became letters for publication. But I think the letters to the children are raw emotion, how she's trying to set them up in their future lives. And and I find that really an important aspect of Ethel trying, as I say, not only to be a good mother, but the best possible mother and to distance herself from the green glass style of mothering. She wants to give her children everything she possibly can for their future life if the worst happens and it's without without her. You do a very theatrical, very dramatic thing in terms of opening the book with the execution scene, which you describe quite chillingly and forensically. Why did you decide to start at the end? Well, I I think it was inevitable, really. If people know anything about the Rosenbergs, they know that they were electrocuted. They probably know it from the first line of The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. It was a queer, sultry summer, the summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs. So it wasn't as if I needed to avoid a spoiler. Everybody knew, but they probably didn't know quite how barbaric and gruesome it was. Whether or not you're against the death penalty, the way this happened, that the government didn't know who to electrocute first. They thought that Ethel was the stronger character. Again, you have the misogyny here. And they thought, well, um, perhaps Julius will crack at the last minute. And won't it look awful if we electrocute the mother first and then wait for Julius? And he gives us names at the last minute and we have to spare him. Uh, The American public won't be able to cope with that, having killed the mother and saved the father. And and it should be noted here that even Hoover, the head of the FBI, at this point did not want to kill Ethel because he knew, um, in, in the words of today, he knew that the optics would not be good, that this really was not the way they wanted it to pan out. So they decided to kill Julius first. And then when they have this ham-fisted attempt to lead Ethel, who walks with great dignity to the electric chair. And I've been there. I've been to Sing Sing. I've seen the room. I know what her last view would be. How could I not open the book with with that? But um, the straps either didn't fit properly because Ethel was too small or they weren't moistened adequately. But after three jolts, they lifted Ethel down, put a stethoscope to her and found she was still alive. They had to reattach Ethel. They had to give her two more jolts of uh, volts of of electricity. And at the second attempt, she was killed. Now, Bob Considine, who was the reporter 
who announced their death because, of course, they had to have doctors and reporters there. And Bob Considine, who was, you know, the Walter Cronkite of his day, the reporter, in his announcement to the public afterwards, which is absolutely graphic. You can find it on, on YouTube, probably. He he can't say the word stethoscope. He's so moved. Um, he, he has three attempts to say steth- uh, the steth- I can't say it. And eventually he says the stethoscope. But there's more, really. He talks about how Ethel will have a lot of explaining to do when she meets her maker. And here's the point where it's really laced with misogyny. He describes these two attempts to kill Ethel. And he says three jolts of electricity would have been enough to kill an ordinary person. So what you see here is how this had seeped into the consciousness of the American public. They believed Ethel was not an ordinary person because she had subverted everything it meant to be an American housewife. And I think they did this in numerous ways. And you see it in the trial, which is so theatrical, so staged, the way they introduce this um, perjury that I talked of earlier, the perjury of David talking about the typing. It was no accident that they settled on a typewriter as the key piece of evidence, because a woman at a typewriter was something that every American man would recognize. Perhaps his wife was a typist. Perhaps in his office, he had a secretary who did the typing who he trusted. But if you couldn't trust the woman at the typewriter in your life, then you couldn't trust anybody. So they had cleverly painted the picture that Ethel was not a normal person. So Bob Considine's words after her electrocution would have rung true. People would have felt, well, it was good that they killed them because she wasn't an ordinary woman. Well, and you talk about optics there, and I know I'm not the first person to make the comparison, but of course, when I was reading about her not seeing her children when she was in the women's house of detention, and about her stoicism and her kind of lack of expression during the trial, of course, any Australian would think of Lindy Chamberlain, who was vilified as a mother and was seen to have no emotions or whatever emotions she had were inappropriate, Whatever she wore was inappropriate. And that was also held against Ethel, that she didn't dress up for court, did she? It's so true. We all know examples in history of women who have been judged by how they look or how they dress. And in the case of Ethel's trial, I think it's important. The jury was not sequestered, so they could read all these newspaper articles And I quote from some of them where they talk about Ethel's style of dress. Ethel wore whatever she had to hand. You know, she had no money and she thought it was more important to please the fellow women in in the house of detention who had supplied odd hats and scarves. And she really did look like a a downtrodden woman, but it, it was held against her that she hadn't made an effort to smile or, or more to the point that she hadn't made any attempt to cry and show emotion. Whereas Ethel believed that dignity was, was the most important thing. But yes, she was judged by how she looked. At this point in our conversation, I reminded Anne that we met when she was publicising That Woman, her best-selling biography of Wallace Simpson, a woman who is the polar opposite of Ethel Rosenberg and who was defined by her appearance. While writing that book, Anne had the good fortune that every biographer dreams about, discovering dynamite previously unpublished material. She made a point of explaining how far she had gone to follow that lead used a tool at everyone's disposal. I did a Wikipedia search on Ernest Simpson almost on day one of my research. And there I discovered that Ernest Simpson, you know, the bowler-hatted, perfect gentleman who everybody thought was, um, you know, such an, an Englishman and never said anything, actually had four wives 
And by his third wife, he had a son who now goes by the name of Aaron Solomon. So, you know, that rings alarm bells for any biographer. So I thought, who is Aaron Solomon's? How is he the son of Ernest Simpson? It turns out that Aaron Solomon's is a freediver in Mexico. And in fact, he chose the name Aaron Solomon because Aaron Solomon's because his father, Ernest Simpson, had been part of the Solomon family. The son thought it was Solomon's with an S. And when he discovered that his father was actually part of a Jewish family with a Hamburg shipping connection and that his father had refused ever to have the word Jew pronounced in the house, he was so angry with his father that he went off to live in Israel and the Israeli Defence Forces trained him in freediving. He became a world expert in freediving. He was born in 1939, so he was approaching 70 when I went to see him. And I discovered him living a life of extreme, um, he lived in almost in solitary confinement in Mexico. He had a camp in the Mexican desert by a California sewer. It's where Steinbeck wrote The Pearl. Nobody goes there except fishermen. It was a weird and wonderful thing to do because I didn't know what this man who called himself Aaron Solomons would have to tell me. He hadn't wanted to see me. He insisted that he didn't know Wallace herself because he was born after his father's divorce. He had nothing to tell me. Um, But I went anyway. And he then insisted I spent some time with him in the Mexican desert. He went with a machete to kill snakes. We took enough water for four days. My phone ran out of signal. I did all the things I tell my daughters never, ever to do. I behaved recklessly in search of a story. But I came away not with a story, but with addresses. And because his father was much married, there were many addresses And one of these, it turned out, owned 20 letters between Wallace and Ernest during the period of their divorce and shortly afterwards. And these letters were gold dust. I mean, really the holy grail for biographers. What they revealed was that Wallace was still in love with her second husband, Ernest Simpson. She regretted leaving him for the king. She didn't want to marry the king, who she called Peter Pan in these letters, the boy who wouldn't grow up. So they they were extraordinary and they'd never been seen before. You know, if you go into a library or archive letters and microfilm, these letters were still in their envelopes. They were letters that only two people were ever meant to see, Wallace and her second husband, Ernest Simpson. And I found them because I did a very dangerous thing. I went off to stay with a man I didn't know in the Mexican desert, armed with a machete, who I had learnt was Ernest Simpson's son by his third marriage. So it's a bizarre story, but I I got lucky. You certainly did. Did you have to buy those letters? No, um, the letters belonged to a woman who at the time did not want her name made public. She had a perfectly legitimate right to them. She didn't know that she had them. They really were in a trunk in the attic. So it took six months of cajoling for her to meet me. She was actually the stepdaughter of Ernest's fourth wife. So it it was a logical path, but nobody had taken it before. And when I found them, at first, she didn't want me to see them all. The second visit, she allowed me to photograph them. By the third or fourth visit, she realised she owned a bit of a treasure trove. I tried to get her to sell them to any British university where they could be seen by other researchers. But unfortunately, buying letters is not an option. They expected them to come with an endowment because it's expensive to look after them, to treat them. So in the end, and I don't blame her, she sold them to a private American collector who was prepared to pay her quite a lot of money. And this private American collector now owns them. Was there a sense with Ethel that you were aiming to access previously unavailable material? Did you hope that there might be something? Of course, every biographer always hopes that. 
I did go to Boston University and saw the letters actually on flimsy prison paper with all the crossings out. And that's really quite important, I think, for a biographer to get a sense of of the link to the person that you're writing about. Um, I felt that this was a case a bit like the abdication that had been so trawled over. I might not necessarily find new information, although there is David's grand jury revelations that hadn't been made public before. More important to me was I felt that after 70 years, perhaps tempers would be less anguished, less frayed, and that this was a time to talk about this story. And yet there were still people alive who would have some input. And again, more to the point, I felt this was time to tell a different version of the story, to look at Ethel in her own right, who it is widely accepted, did not have a KGB name, was not in direct contact with the KGB was not an active spy. She was killed really for being a wife, for being a loyal wife. And I just thought it was time to examine this story before all the protagonists had had gone. And it was time with a, a 21st century interpretation to look at why Ethel had been so vilified. What do you think are the resonances and the lessons of this case, given that we're in a new phase of great suspicion, particularly in America, of both uh, Putin and the Chinese? And we also have the case of Julian Assange, who, whilst not a spy, is regarded by many as a traitor and as someone who has passed information to enemy countries. What do you think are the resonances and the lessons of the Rosenberg story for us today? Well, I was taught history by a man who used to say the only lesson in history is that there are no lessons in history. There are just too many variables always with every case you look at. Of course, there is resonance. And that's why I say the importance of the rule of law is paramount to me. I don't approve of corrupt trials. I don't approve of communist dictatorships and totalitarianism. I don't approve of one individual believing he or she has the right to give information to another country. I don't think that is the duty of a citizen. So, you know, I'm not a communist apologist, certainly not for Stalin or Putin. But I also think we have to be aware of allowing hysteria, of allowing mob rule to overtake our reason. And I I certainly don't believe in the death sentence in, in capital punishment. So I think there are some lessons, but I'm never in favor of drawing too close a line between a particular moment in American history when McCarthyism clearly became hysterical and burnt itself out. But I also think, you know, one just has to be aware of allowing mob rule to let people think, well, the greater good is that the means justifies the end, because I don't think that's a good way for a democratic country to function. I really think that when a state believes the life of one of its citizens is expendable in the course of the greater good is a dangerous path to follow. Now, you said earlier that this story is, well, it's so many things really, but amongst the many things that it is, it is also definitely a love story. Uh, Julius and Ethel were passionate about each other. They were devoted. They were a happy married couple. This book took you five years to write. And in the middle of it, your husband died suddenly. What impact did that have on you and the writing of this book? I know the book is dedicated to Mark. It must have been impossible at one stage to continue or was it a very welcome relief to have a project to immerse yourself in? Well it's a bit of both everyone who's been widowed will understand that there in the immediate aftermath you're overcome by grief and you feel you can't do anything but I would say work is a huge solace 
I was very privileged to have this project to work on, a project which had meant a lot to my husband, Mark. We we are both the grandchildren of East European immigrants, so I suppose there is a little bit of what if, if our grandparents had taken a route to America, where I had lived and I knew the Lower East Side well. In point of fact, our grandparents came to England. So there was a little bit of feeling, well, I need to finish this project because it's something that mattered a lot to my husband, whose father actually was born in in St. Petersburg. So, you know, I had those competing elements, but there are also practical matters. But it wasn't just that my husband had died. We've all been in lockdown. I don't know about you, but in England, lockdown has lasted for months. Being a widow meant there were moments when I never saw anybody. Um, Months, actually, when I never saw anybody. So I suppose I'd be lying if I said that all of that isolation did not somehow infect my thinking. I've spent quite a lot of time before all of this visiting prisons. My mother was a prison visitor. She often went to Holloway Prison to the mother and baby unit there. And so I grew up hearing stories about what it was like for young women in prison. As a journalist, I visited many prisons. I'm not pretending that my house in lovely suburban Richmond is anything like a prison. But at the same time, the sense of isolation did reinforce in me an attempt to try and understand how Ethel felt. And I'm not pretending that I can come anywhere near to it. But I did conclude that Ethel was bereft not only of maternal support, family support, but good advice. They had one lawyer who was fighting their case jointly. It was not his specialty. He did his best when no one else would take on this case. Perhaps Ethel could have had better advice. She had a psychiatrist who I don't think helped her very much. I think he found it overwhelming and eventually abandoned her. I think Ethel was cruelly treated by the American media. I think the American judiciary let her down, the political scenario let her down, her own family let her down. So what I really felt was here was a woman totally isolated from almost everything. How on earth could she come to any useful decision? But I think she did. I think she concluded there was no way out for her. She was trapped. So she might as well behave with as much dignity as she could and give her sons the very best legacy that she could. And that legacy was loyalty above all else, loyalty above betrayal. Now, I'm curious about your approach and how you go about the architecture and the structure of a biography. So many biographers have told me that they start with a timeline. Some biographers I've spoken to have a filing system where they have a file for every year. Your book kind of comes to its climax, I suppose, with the trial, which you describe in very, very great detail, but it's also riveting from a sort of dramatic point of view. How did you organize your research? And how did you structure the way you went about this project? That was the most difficult thing because you're dealing with everybody who's lying. Nobody is telling the truth. So you don't really know if something actually happened or they said it happened or maybe it didn't happen. And that's why I felt the trial had to be central because at least they said it in the trial, even if what they were saying was not actually the truth. Then, of course, um, as I say, there were these two families either side of it. So I very definitely wanted a, a chapter to be about the redemption of the two sons. I wanted a chapter about the family that they moved into. And I also wanted a chapter about Ethel subsequently, why she's become such a cultural icon, because there has been so much written and produced and and 
paintings, of course, from Picasso to Warhol. Many people have used Ethel because they see her story as so complicated. Julius is really much more straightforward and less interesting dramatically. He was a spy. He was keen to be a spy. He was like a puppy dog, actually, sort of bounding over to every Russian saying, what can I give you? How can I help you? I mean, foolish, naive, all those things. But Ethel was much more complex. I actually say in the book, she eludes labelling. I think she's so many different things. And that's why I wanted a chapter at the end, looking at how her legacy has been perceived by so many writers and artists in the 70 years since her death. But how did I construct my research? Yes, I had a timeline. I have a shoebox. I have a big chart. I printed out the trial, all 2,000 pages of it, and numerous secondary sources and, and notebooks. I mean, it, it was a very complex book, as I say, because even Ethel told lies in the trial. So, you know, who do you believe? And And that's really why it's so complex. Yes, you're sort of um, looking into all these distorting mirrors at once, aren't you? Precisely. And I think I've tried to give alternative versions or my training at Reuters is always, you know, a quote. You, you can't say that it's your view. It's what somebody said at that time. And then somebody else contradicts it. I think for me, one of the most disappointing details that you mention in the book is Eleanor Roosevelt's response to an appeal for clemency. There were appeals for clemency from the great and the good, from the Pope of the day, from Einstein, from Picasso. I think that there were three million letters, you say, by the time that the execution was about to take place, that the American government had received three million letters from people urging clemency. Eleanor Roosevelt, a great humanitarian, why didn't she I think you've said it for me. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, not only a great humanitarian, but anti the death penalty. She was against capital punishment. I can only repeat what I said before, that the slipperiness of politicians no longer surprises me at all. I suppose she concluded, what's in it for me? Why should I get involved? She also had the ear of this establishment Jew called Morris Ernst. And I digress quite a bit to talk about him because I think he's a stand-in for many establishment Jews who wanted to distance themselves from these commie, traitor, red, impoverished Jews who he felt really did not represent what it means to be a patriotic American. And so somebody like Morris Ernst was constantly writing to Eleanor Roosevelt. And perhaps she thought in the end, well, if other Jews don't believe there's a civil rights issue here, and Morris Ernst, who was in a position to judge civil rights issues, and he very definitely did not believe it, then why should I stick my leg out? Why why should I get involved in, in this case? So... Um, That's probably the only way you can explain this. And I'm imagining that as a journalist, you would have honed a fairly good bullshit detector. But nonetheless, there is someone who tried to lead you astray. In 2018, when you're going to Los Alamos to do some research there, someone kind of gives you a complete bum steer. Do you rely a lot on your intuition and your instinct, both in interviewing people face to face, but also in assessing whether a lead is a complete red herring? Oh, how interesting. I came away so hopeful about that possible lead. But once I looked at it, it just didn't make any sense. So it wasn't really very difficult. And actually, it taught me something else. I mean, there was a point where I wasn't going to put it in the book at all, because it was irrelevant. And then I realized that actually, what it showed me is how the story of Ethel Rosenberg has become almost bigger than the people themselves. So nothing is useless. Everything shows you something. 
even if it's not what the, the people who tell you about it think it's going to show you. I mean, I suppose someone there was trying to extort some money from you, but I suppose you're right. What it proves is that Ethel has become a sort of myth. She's she's become mythic in the 20th and in the 21st century. Yes, there was no money involved. I actually think it was somebody just trying to be helpful, someone who had heard this story, who thought, oh, this is the person I should tell it to. But it just didn't, you know, the dates didn't tally, so... You're right. Ethel has become completely mythic. And and I wanted to strip that away. I wanted to show her as a three, four dimensional woman. You might not like her. She is quite hard to like. um, But I think she deserves to be understood. And above all, I wanted to restore her humanity. Seber has written a very lucid, moving, often quite harrowing biography of Ethel Rosenberg, in which she almost surgically separates her story from that of her husband. The result is persuasive about what Ethel did and didn't do, and how much she knew. But it is, above all, the portrait of an idealistic woman caught up in a dysfunctional family, defined by betrayal, who refused to compromise. To me, it has an almost operatic quality. I think you can hear the passion for her subject in Anne's voice and in the detailed and emphatic way that she answers questions. There is a crusade at the heart of this biography to see Ethel on her own terms, not just as Julius's partner. It takes an experienced biographer to tackle the political and legal minefield at the heart of this story. Not surprisingly, the film rights to Anne's book have been optioned and she's involved with the production. The big question now is who should play Ethel? Life Sentences is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and Jennifer Macy. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to their elders past and present. You may have noticed we have new theme music for this series. It's a track called Bunnies, written and performed by Amanda Brown from her album Slow Chocolate, published by Lily Pilly IP and licensed to us courtesy of Lily Pilly IP. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. Life Sentences.